Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, we are in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. I was going to talk about myself while uh, you guys flipped there, but now I don't have anything to talk about. So thank you, Josh. Um, anyways, as you're turning there, uh, I serve as an elder in our local church um, in Indianapolis called Chapelwood Baptist Church, and I am working through the book of Philippians, and this has been, it's only the second one, I'm working through my third one now, but uh, this has probably been one of my by, by far favorite sermons recently, so I hope that it is edifying to you as well. So Philippians chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 12, we're going to read through verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, But others from goodwill, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice." This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this church body here, this extended family through Christ that I have. Lord, I just pray that this sermon is uplifting to all of us, that it trains our hearts and our eyes to Christ, that our affections for our Lord are lifted, and that we serve him, we love him, and we serve his people greater because of your word this morning. I pray this in his name. Amen. On February 4th, 1906, in a small town in Germany, of a name I can't pronounce, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born. Some of you might know this name, but some of you might not, so I hope, I hope this story is fun in some regard. Despite growing up through World War I in Germany and being in anything other than a Christian home, the Lord instilled in Dietrich Bonhoeffer a fervor for the Lord and for his people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer loved Christ and loved his people. In 1935, Dietrich Bonhoeffer pastored a church in Germany that openly preached against the Nazi party. He also led an underground or illegal seminary connected to that church, all while the Gestapo is running rampant throughout Germany. Now, if you know anything about World War II history, the mid to late 1930s is not a good time to be talking against the Nazi party. That's a self-imposed death sentence. But Bonhoeffer and his contemporaries continued to study, preach, and teach the word of God. The Gestapo shut them down in 1937. He flees from Germany and goes to the U.S., but it's not long before he makes his way back to Nazi Germany. He was arrested and imprisoned 
by the Gestapo on April 5th, 1943. For two years, he was moved around to different internment camps. On April 8th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood before a midnight council. He was tried, found guilty for participating in a plan to assassinate Hitler. He was hanged in the dawn light of April 9th. Two weeks later, the Allies liberated the same death camp on April 23rd. Two weeks later. So what's the point of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's story for us? Is it just that we need to go into the hardest to reach places, the most dangerous places, and proclaim Christ with with nothing to lose? Yes, in one regard. But down deep, what's the point of his story? It's that Dietrich Bonhoeffer saw things differently than anyone else. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew that all things are under the sovereign reign of God, and therefore he trusted the Lord. And he knew that God is in control and that God is working through all circumstances. Dietrich Bonhoeffer did not turn a blind eye. He did not stop, modify his teaching and he did not leave Germany and not return. Instead, he trusted in the Lord's working through all circumstances. He is an example of a man who understood what Paul is telling us in our text this morning. As Paul writes to the Philippians... He's in prison, and he's writing to a church concerned for his life. But he does not entertain their concern. In this morning's text, we see that he calls them not to look at how he's put down, but to look at how Christ is being lifted up. That's, that is Paul's focus of this text, to see that the gospel is advancing through the most unlikely of circumstances. That's the point. So the takeaway for us is that in all circumstances, Christians can trust and rejoice in the Lord's advancement of the gospel. That's our point. So if you're taking notes, write that down. In all circumstances, Christians can trust and rejoice in the Lord's advancement of the gospel. And I need to set a timer, so I'm sorry, but I will be going for a while if I don't. All right, we're good. So in this passage, Paul's using his own experience as an example to show us this, right? So he's in prison. He's showing us through his example that he's trusting and rejoicing in Christ through these these circumstances. So that's our two main headings, okay? So first, we're going to see how we can trust in the Lord's work in verses 12 to 14. And then we're going to see how we can rejoice in the Lord's work in verses 15 to 18. So let's let's first look at verses 12 to 14. And see that we can trust in the Lord's work. Look at verse 12. Paul begins this section writing, Now I want you all to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul begins telling his reader that he wants them to know that although he is bound, the gospel is on the loose. And through this first section, Paul's going to show this in three ways. So the first way is that the Lord is working through Paul's imprisonment. So let's look at that first. First, it's that it's through his imprisonment. It's not despite. It's not that in spite of Paul being in prison, he, you know, the gospel's still going forward. It's that through this, the gospel is advancing. Now, the Philippians, we noted, like, they're probably concerned for Paul, right? It's, it's like when you all were supporting the Floras. If Jim and Teresa had been thrown in prison, like, how are the Basutu people going to hear the gospel? That's the Philippians. 
They're, they're thinking, Paul's missionary number one. How are the nations going to hear the gospel? What is, how, how can this be part of God's plan? And Paul knows that's the question in their mind. And they just sent him a get well basket. Where you, if you keep reading through Philippians, you'll see he references that in chapter 4. So clearly they're concerned. But Paul redirects their trust to the Lord's work of advancing the gospel by reminding them that it's through, it's not in spite of, it's through his circumstances that the Lord is working. It's not a detour, it's part of the path. that is essential to get. Paul literally writes in these words, he literally writes that it's his circumstances that are working for the progress of the gospel. Okay, so it's, if, if you're a grammarian, it's the subject of the verb. The circumstances are doing the action. He's not saying, I'm in prison, but even still, I'm working hard and, and the gospel's going forth. He's saying, no, 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 look what God is doing. Look how God is using these chains. Look how God is using this wrong that is upon me by the world that is oppressing me. He's saying, look what God is doing to bring him glory, to bring his people to faith, and to strengthen his people. As I am bound, the gospel is set free. That's what Paul is hammering home. And what he's doing is he's making us ask ourselves, how do we understand suffering? How do we understand our suffering? How do we understand other people, our loved ones, or people around the world's suffering? Do we trust that the Lord is working through all things for our good? Do we believe Romans 8? Well, we can. That's the beauty, because Paul's showing us we can believe that no matter what the circumstances are, we can trust that the Lord is working. Now, we need to be careful. That doesn't mean we just plaster on a smile, right? Because that's fake, it's inauthentic, and that doesn't do any good. It doesn't bring any glory to God. It doesn't show anybody the work of Christ in our actions. But instead, we need to be able to look behind the frowning providence and see God's smiling face. That's what that means. That we can look and we can see these dark clouds, but know that they are holding storms of God's mercy to rain down upon us. That's what we can do. When we're in suffering, when we're looking to the dark times, we can trust in the Lord. Think of Ruth. I'll give you a biblical illustration. Think of Ruth. Think of the hardship that Naomi and Ruth experienced. But then think about how God is behind all of it. Like it's not, circum- it's not just coincidence that Naomi and the boys and Elimelech all pack up and go to Moab and find Ruth a Moabite. It's not coincidence that when Ruth and Naomi come back to Bethlehem, it's the first day of harvest after a famine. It's not coincidence that Ruth is gleaning in Boaz's field, who in Matthew's genealogy, Boaz is who? Rahab's son. We understand probably grandson, but still, he knows Rahab, another Gentile adulterous woman. None of this is coincidence. It's not that God's allowing these things to happen. It's that God's working through all of these things. That kind of thinking is what bolsters our trust in the Lord. That he was and he is today providing for his people hope and joy as he works through all human circumstances. That's why we sing it is well. 
in the darkest days and moments, it is well. It is well with our souls, for the Lord is working. So where could God be doing this for you today? Not only do you trust that he's doing it, but where could he be doing it? What places do we hold on to things where we, we want to trust something else? We want to trust a nation. We want to trust a person. We want to trust finances. We want to trust our church. What do we want to trust in place of Christ? That's what Paul, I think, would want to ask us today through this text. And the point is, is because it doesn't just affect you. It affects others. Look what he does. The next two points to note in these verses is that through God's working, he's advancing the gospel. He's advancing it to two people. First, he's advancing the gospel to the pagan, and then he's advancing the gospel in the heart of his own people. So first, let's look at the pagan or the Roman guards. Paul writes in verse 13, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So what this means is that all the Roman guards have come to know that Paul is a little bit different than all the other Roman guards or other Roman prisoners, right? So if you, just a picture of who these guys are. These guys are like, they're, they're the best at doing the worst kind of things. So they're the high-paid Caesar's guards, but one of their mundane tasks was to be chained to royal prisoners. And so as these like really dangerous bad guys are chained to Paul, it seems like they have lots to talk about. Or it seems like Paul has lots to talk about and they have lots to listen to, right? Um, But what's important is that what they're hearing and what they're seeing, they're hearing a prisoner preach freedom. And they're seeing a prisoner boldly proclaim in the face of Caesar, who's the Lord and Savior of Rome, that he's not Lord, that he's not Savior. Paul opens the letter saying, servants of Christ Jesus. In Rome, you're a servant of Caesar. And Paul says, no, no, I'm a servant of Christ. And then he says, I'm not in prison to Caesar. My imprisonment is for Christ. Literally, it's my imprisonment is in Christ. I'm not Caesar's prisoner. I'm Christ's. I'm, this is all for him. What's important to see is that Paul's imprisonment didn't snuff out his fire for the gospel. Instead, it stoked it up. Right? It gets him lit. It gets him going. And everyone else is seeing it. His, his fire for the gospel is burning hotter and brighter. And everybody's noticing it. And who, how couldn't you, right? Again, like if you're a Caesar's guard, how could you not notice that this guy, like he's different than everybody else and then wonder why? Paul continues in verse 14 to say, it's not only among the unbelievers, the pagans, but it's, it's growing as the source and trust in, of confidence among believers, okay? So it doesn't just reach the nations, it's also bolstering the church, when he says brothers, if you have an NIV, it probably says brothers and sisters. It just means all the believers of Rome's church. Okay? It's not specifically pastors. It's all the believers of Rome's church. And what they're doing is they're boldly speaking the gospel in their everyday life to their neighbors, to their bosses, to their coworkers, to their friends, to their family members, to everybody. They're telling of what Christ is doing in Paul's life, how that's encouraging their life, and now how it's reaching them. Like this, it's a, just a chain reaction. They're seeing that as Paul is preaching out of his weakness and encourages them to speak out of their own weakness. And that's really big for us today. 
How many, how, how many of us have to pick up the house before people can come over? Right? If you're going to have your unbelieving friends over, oh, we got to pick up those kids, you better be good. Like all these things. But friends, it's, it's not out of our perfection that the gospel is proclaimed. It's out of our weakness. It's out of the weakness of Paul that the gospel proclaimed. It's not the football player in the end zone pointing to the sky that encourages people to preach the gospel. It's the prisoner in chains saying, the gospel's going forward and I am bound. That is what gets people going. That's what encourages the people of God. So it's not out of our strength. It's not out of our eloquence. It's not out of our ability to speak well in front of people. It is out of our trusting that the Lord is working through all circumstances. It is looking to how he's working in Paul's life, how he's working in Rome, and how he's working in our own hearts today. That's how the gospel advances to the unbelievers. Notice that God is using Paul's imprisonment not only to reach the unbeliever, but to remind and build up the believers, reminding them and reminding us that God is in control. That in the darkest moments, the light of God's truth and grace shines brightest. Okay, this is the heart of the gospel message. This is the gospel. That in the darkest moments, the the most atrocious evil where it was committed was on the cross. That's where God the Son, the, the perfect, eternal, all authority comes to earth, humiliates himself by putting on the flesh of man, He lives the life that you cannot live, that I cannot live. He's perfectly pleasing to God. And he says, give me to them, Lord. He says, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. The innocent man is humiliated and murdered upon a cross. It's the darkest moment. And when he says it is finished, what happened? The earth is covered in darkness. The light of the world has been put out. There's no more hope, friends. That's what that means. There's no more joy. There's no more love. It's darkness. Or is it? Is all the hope gone? Is God working through this darkness? It is three days later that we see that out of the darkness, the light bursts forward as Jesus resurrects. He declares victory over sin and death. It is through this darkness of the world that Jesus saves his people. That is the gospel. That's what Paul is experiencing. That's what Rome is seeing. And that is what we proclaim to the world. That it is through the darkness that God is sovereignly in control, works through for his glory and our good. That's reality. And if that's not reality for you, that becomes reality through faith and repentance in Christ. Through saying that there is nothing that I trust in other than Jesus and his death for my atonement. For saying there is no righteousness, there's not a prayer I say, there's not a life I live, there's nothing I do that gets me right before God other than Jesus freely giving me his righteousness. It is through that that this becomes reality. That it becomes reality that God uses the worst evil for the greatest good and we get to rejoice in it. 
this is, this is just good news. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we can trust that God works in all circumstances. Let's bring this back to today. In elections, in world events, in natural disasters, in the death of our family member, in the cancer diagnosis of our loved one or our child, we can trust our Lord. It doesn't mean we shrug off the hardship of life. It doesn't mean that at all. Like I said, we don't plaster a smile on, but it means we can sing it as well with our soul. One of my favorite verses is Nahum 1.7. Nahum's prophesying to Israel. There's evil about to happen. Some very horrible things are about to happen. And he says, the Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Friends, the Lord knows you. He knows your name. You can trust him. And we don't just trust, we also rejoice. This is the good news. This is the exciting part. We don't just trust that the Lord works through all circumstances, we rejoice that the Lord works through all circumstances. So look back with me. We're going to read the next set of text. It's been a while since we read it, so we're going to go back and we're going to read verses 15 to 18. I'm doing good on time. Um, and we are going to look at how the Lord not just can, we can just trust that he's in control and he's working, but we can rejoice in the Lord's work. So look back at verse 15 with me. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So we saw that the gospel is advancing through all circumstances, but it's also advancing through all intentions. It's not just the world, it's also us who can be roadblocks. But the gospel still goes forth. First of all, note that Paul's not describing, I don't think so, I'll explain why. I don't think Paul is describing the brothers from verse 14. I think he's talking about two new groups here. So the brothers in verse 14, which we can say brothers and sisters, is a communal noun, right? Um, brothers and sisters in verse 14, they're praised for their boldness and confidence in the Lord. Whereas these two groups are given new descriptions. One is also a positive description, still a little different. I think the big tell is that it's a different action. So in verse 14, they're speaking the gospel. Um, down here in verse 16, 15, yeah, 15, 16, they're preaching the gospel. Different verb, different action, different people. So what are these people talking about? What are they doing? Well, we see that there's two camps. They're both preaching, but there's two camps. One preaches from envy and strife, and then the other preaches out of goodwill. So we're going to look at those two camps separately. But before we do, look at how Paul orders it. I think it's really interesting. It's something to note that it's a different group, but also how he orders this. He starts with the bad group, and then he talks about the good group. Then he comes back to the bad group. There's a big fancy term for that called inclusio. I am from Spokane, Missouri. I call it bookends, right? So there's something in the middle that he bookends it on each end with something, right? 
So he's saying, there's some bad guys. There's some good guys. We like them. But don't forget about those bad guys. Right? So when he does something like that, when any literature does that, it's telling us something that we need to really note the bad guys. We really need to know what they're doing. Okay? So what are they doing? Paul explains that they preach Christ out of envy and strife. Paul flushes this out a bit in verse 17, saying that they proclaim Christ thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So literally, Paul says that they, they seek to like afflict or squeeze the bonds on his wrist. They, they want to torque down his shackles. They want to make life miserable for Paul. One author wrote that they do hope, not in the Lord, but that what they're doing rubs salt in the wounds of Paul. Like they just want to really rub him wrong. Not only do they preach with intentions to hurt Paul, they also preach out of selfish ambition and insincerity. So these preachers are preaching for their name. They're preaching out of their love for themselves. They want their names in the lights of Rome, which is really ironic. Right? If you just think about that, first century Rome, not a real great place for Christians to have their names in lights, unless it's like evening entertainment at the Colosseum, right? featuring so-and-so of Selmore Baptist Church. Like, it's not a great place to have your name in the lights of Rome. Um, so they want to have their names in the lights of Rome. They want to build up their platform for all of Rome and the world to hear their voice to see them, to follow their teaching, and to remember their name, which was, we don't know. Is there not great irony in that? Right? They're, they're doing all, like, they're just really twisting the knife on Paul, and, like, it doesn't matter. We don't know their names. They put everything into being remembered and preach Christ out of selfish ambition and their names are lost to history. Now, I want to be careful. They're not heretics. We do need to know who these guys are somewhat, not their names. Obviously, it's not important. Paul will tell us. They're clearly not on Paul's recommended list of churches to go to. If you move to Rome, Paul's not going to be like, check out John's church. Like, he probably wouldn't be named John. Whatever name he has. Don't check out his church. Um, but they're still not heretics. The Bible as a whole. The Old Testament, if you want to see what is, if you want to see the punishment for false prophecy, go to the Old Testament. There's no room for false prophecy. It happened. But in the law, there's no room for it. The New Testament, there is no room for false gospels being preached. So if you go to Galatians chapter 1, Paul makes it very clear. There's no introduction. There's nothing. There's just, he is coming forth outright and coming at him saying, if someone preaches a gospel different than what we preached, if an angel comes or anybody else, let them be accursed. And then he says it twice. Because once just isn't enough. Let them be accursed. There's no room for false gospel. Clearly, these guys are not doing that. Why is there no room for a false gospel, though? Like, it's a good point to stop and ask that question. Why? Because eternal life and death are at stake. Until we understand the weight of preaching the gospel correctly, biblically, there is, we will not understand the true weight of preaching the gospel. Preaching a false gospel does not give life 
it only gives death. So as an angel appears to a man in the woods in New England, or as an angel appears to a man who's illiterate in a cave in Saudi Arabia, that's not the gospel. And if we allow that to be preached from our pulpits, then we are endangering the eternal life of men and women. It's a non-negotiable. So, these guys aren't doing that. But their intentions are wrong. Paul notes it. We don't want to negate what Paul's saying here. He's saying, don't be like these guys. He's saying, do better. So what are our intentions when we talk about the gospel? I know it's talking to preachers, but we can apply this to anybody. When you talk to people about theology, when you talk to people about the gospel, when you talk about people about your faith, why? Why do you do it? Is it to be right? Is it to assert your knowledge? Why don't you do it? Is it because you don't want to look silly? Is it because you don't want to be wrong or like, it is wrong, but like you don't want to get a gotcha question? Your apologetic skills aren't honed yet? Both of those at the bottom of them have the same intentions. It's both selfish ambition and insincerity. And we need to be careful of that. Instead, these guys are preaching out of the love for themselves. But we should preach and speak the gospel out of our love for Christ and his people. That's what the second group is doing. Let's look at them real quick. Look at verse 16. <clears throat> They're preaching out of love. Verse 16 says, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So their motivation is much like those up in verse 14, right? They're, they're, they've been bolstered by seeing that, that Paul's in prison, but God is working through his imprisonment. They're encouraged, and they've been stirred up in their affections for Christ. So they're preaching out of their trust, but more precisely, their love for God. They knew that God was in control, and he had appointed Paul. So they're, they're trusting that Paul's not just there or that it'll work, but they're trusting that he's been appointed there to do this, and that encourages their love. So why, just a step away, this might be dangerous, step away from this. Why did I start with Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Because when we see other people's trust in the Lord, it stirs our affections for Christ. So just a side note, read church history. Read biographies of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Let your heart be stirred by seeing the faithfulness of God's people throughout the ages. Now, friends, I hope that when we talk about the gospel, that's how it comes across. That it's out of our love. That it's from looking to Paul. That it's from hearing the stories of Bonhoeffer. That it's from our just growing love as we grow in our knowledge of Christ through spreading scripture. That it's out of our love that we speak the gospel. That it's our love for Christ and for his people. Paul doesn't specify love here. He doesn't specify it earlier in chapter 1 because I think it's what he's getting at. Because everywhere else when he talks about love, it's love for Christ and love for his people. When we talk about Jesus, when we talk about what Jesus has done in our life, it's an effort to share the kindness and mercy of God that we ourselves have experienced. 
right? That's what Titus 3.3 is all about. Titus 3.3, Paul writes to Titus, he says, Remind them that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That was us. Until the mercy and kindness of God appeared. And he changed our hearts. So what should our intentions in sharing the gospel be? That I was just like you. But I've tasted the sweetness of grace. And it changed everything. Sometimes we think it has to be negative. That people need to hear wrath. No, they need to hear sin. But God's always really good about letting people know about wrath. Old Testament, God's doing it, not Elijah. When Ahab is bad, the famine comes from God, not Elijah. New Testament, Revelation, the trumpets are blown by Christ and God, not by man. So let God take care of the wrath. We can talk about sin. We should talk about sin. We must talk about sin because then the death of Christ means nothing. But friends, Romans 2.4, I said that, I should jump over there real quick. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So when we preach the gospel, let's be like God. Let's preach out of kindness. Preach the mercy and love of Christ that defeats the evil of your sin. Expose the sin and come to people with love. That's what God does. He exposes our sin by showing us the cross. And then he gives us his son. Now, Paul finishes this up. I said we're going to talk about rejoicing, and we haven't. I better get on it, because I'm getting close on time. Paul finishes this up, explaining why this all leads to rejoicing. So we've seen that God works through all circumstances. Now we saw that God works through all intentions, and we want to always encourage ourselves to work through love and kindness, because that's what God's shown us. But now Paul finishes asking a question. What then? Well, honestly, if you're just reading this, it's not being preached to you. Maybe you haven't read the rest of the Bible. You're thinking, you know, I don't really know, Paul. Like, it just doesn't seem that good. Like, you're saying it seems good, but you're not really convincing me. Right? You're in prison, in Roman prison. Um, There's guys that are slandering you. There's lots of bad things happening in the world. Caesar is on the throne. This doesn't look too good. What then? I don't know, Paul. What then? You tell me. Well, he does. He tells you outright. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. In every circumstance, through every intention, Christ is proclaimed, and in that we can rejoice. Paul closes by showing his readers that the greatest joy is not in everyone being on the same team. It's not in our financial stability. It's not in our political party. It's not in whatever nation we're born in. It's not in living close to our family. It's not in anything that the world tells you there is joy. It's in Christ. 
That is where joy is. It is in Christ and in seeing him being proclaimed and glorified. That is joy. That is the road to joy. If someone to harm him and raise themselves up, as long as Christ is proclaimed, Paul is like, go at it. Christ is being proclaimed. He's glorified. His people are coming to faith. Have fun. Now, if others want to preach Christ out of love, Paul's like, oh, keep on going. Multiply. Teach other people to do that. But we're going to keep rejoicing in Christ all the more. The ultimate joy is in the proclamation of Christ and the furtherment of his gospel. It's where Paul's joy is found. It's where those in Rome's joy is found. It's where our joy should be found. Even if we're put down, whether it's financially, whether it's politically, whether it's oppression by anything or any force out there, when we're put down, as long as Christ is lifted up, we will rejoice. We will rejoice. Friends, 2020, I don't think I need to say this, but I'm going to, has been hard. It's been really weird, if nothing else. Like, if you don't think it's been hard, it's been weird. We can all admit that, right? Whether it's uh, COVID, an election, the news, whatever. I mean, it's like the list goes on and on. I could just keep pulling triggers on people all day. 2020 has been really hard. But because everything that did happen was more or less unexpected, I think it became harder. It really shook our nation. I think it shook many of us as well. We just didn't see it coming. We're coming into 2020 with 2020 vision, which I joked about this last time. I don't really know what that means, but I think it's a good thing. I hope it is, because <laughs> that'd be bad. But anyways, we, come, we came into 2020 thinking it's the first year of a new decade. It's going to be good. And it just blindsided, blindsided us, and we can't reorient. But we can trust and rejoice in Christ, even in 2020. We know that all things are under his sovereign rule. Our Lord Jesus is seated on the throne. When we read seated, that means it's done. That means there's no worries. There's no tearing. He is seated on the throne because he's in control. Because when he left his people, he said, all authority in heaven and earth are given to me. And then he ends saying, and I will be with you until the end of the age. We can trust our Lord and we can rejoice in his work of the furthering of of his gospel. As we see more of God's people come to him, Ecclesiastes, right? He's came out of Ecclesiastes. As, as people under the sun, as their eyes are open and they start to see that they're under the sun, they see the glory of God under the sun, they start to experience his mercy and grace, we can rejoice and we can trust that the Lord is working. Friends, let us trust. Not just can, let us trust. And let us rejoice in Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can look to you in all circumstances and know that you are working. In the cloudy days and in the sunny days, your mercy is raining down. Father, I pray that you help train our hearts, our eyes, and minds to this truth, that you remind our hearts of your goodness, that you help us sing it as well with our souls. That your mind is that is you who are our refuge and that you know our name, that we can trust you and we know that you have all authority and power on earth and in heaven and that you are with us. 
Father, I pray that our affections for Christ Jesus has been raised today. Lord, will you use your spirit to do that and to bolster our faith, to boldly proclaim through all circumstances and to all peoples your goodness and your mercy. I pray this in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen.